0: Hello and welcome to Backbench Drivers, a National Observer Podcast. I'm your host, John Lawson, and with me here today is Matthew, my co-host. And this is episode zero of the show. It's gonna be covering weekly Australian politics and news, current events, anything related. Um, it's great to be with you, Matthew. Um, How you very doing? Well
1: thank you. How are you? Not
0: too bad. Not too bad. We've got a couple of big stories lined up here today. All of them are on uh, one topic, it seems to be, but it's a big topic, an important topic, so I'm looking forward to getting into it. So just to give a rundown on how the podcast is going to operate, each week it's going to be myself and Matthew, uh, along with probably one other host who's going to rotate in. We've got a all-star lineup, people who really know their stuff going to be joining us, so make sure you t- stay tuned and uh, come back for every episode. Apart from that, I think we're good to jump into the episode. What's our first article? Uh, Our first
1: article is from the Sydney Morning Herald, and it's titled, Mins to Tighten Toothless Laws Against Hate Speech, Violent Threats. The New South Wales government is moving to tighten laws against hate speech, threats, and incitement to violence amid concerns criminal provisions introduced five years ago have not resulted in any successful prosecutions. The Herald has confirmed the Jewish deputy, Jewish Board of Deputies, along with other groups, including Faith New South Wales, have lobbied Premier Chris Minns and the government about laws they have described as ineffective and impotent. However, the opposition is warning against any changes that allow the law to be weaponized to endanger speech. That is controversial, but should remain lawful. It comes as concerns mount over rising anti-Semitism and certain Islamic preachers extolling jihad following the October 7th attack on Israel and subsequent war between the Jewish state and Hamas-controlled Gaza. Faith New South Wales, a multi-denominational group launched by MINS last month, welcomed the review and said the 2018 laws were well-meaning but had proven ineffective and impotent. Opposition leader Mark Speakman, who introduced the amendments as Attorney General at the time, said he was open to changes, but it was important to note there hasn't yet been any court outcome showing any need for reform. We have to be careful not to allow the law to be weaponized against controversial free speech, which does justify a criminal sanction, Speakman said. The best thing, for, the best thing that Chris Mins can do is find a way, a more active and capable police minister who won't just stand by as these issues escalate. Separately, the government on Sunday announced the start of a new law that makes it unlawful to incite hatred towards serious contempt for or severe ridicule of someone based on their religious beliefs or affiliations. Complaints can be taken to anti-discrimination, New South Wales, though these are not criminal matters.
0: Yes, yeah, so um, I suppose I think it's pretty obvious to both of us why this is very problematic. This is a law that is going to be detrimental to free speech. We've seen similar laws in Canada, Britain. Uh, all around the Western world, really. And they basically are always weaponised to lock up people who criticise the prevailing ideology of uh, protected religions. For example, you can imagine how this is going to be used to protect Aboriginal Dreamtime, for instance, or anything like that, Islam, Judaism. But, of course, it will never be used to protect Christianity, as we've seen uh, in our recent article, written by Matthew himself, he uh, covered a case of Christian schools being targeted by the government, um, by Mintz himself actually. So we can't expect this to go both ways. That's Do you, you add, Matthew?
1: All these laws always sound nice on paper, you know. We don't want to upset anyone. We don't want to be rude, but they they never actually end up like this in in practical sense. It's always protecting minorities, protecting. Uh, these small interest groups against the majority when the majority doesn't get the same protection.
0: Yeah, exactly. We've seen this with current anti-defamation laws. Um, They've been used to lock up people who even made jokes in the past or made things even adjacent to something that could sound rude or something like that. So it's no good. Uh, We really don't like this. Although, if it is being strictly kept in theory, if it was only to lock up people, inciting people to violence, I think that's something everyone would agree to. That's even something the American constitution, you know, probably has the best free speech protections um, includes, you know, you can't incite to violence, but uh, we have to take this from a realistic point of view and realize it's not going to be used impartially. Um, It's look at the instance, which has sparked it. It's a uh, partisan, uh, religious war, really, it's uh, that's what sparked this law to come into effect or to be pushed for by MIGs.
1: It's always going to be these self interested uh, lobbyist groups pushing for certain things, and yeah, it's always going to be the detriment to the general public who aren't as politically engaged or don't have as much political capital.
0: That's something we wanted to focus on further in the episode because, um. Did you want to read out the names of the two lobby organisations that have been credited yeah, with pushing this? S-
1: yeah, yeah, of Just course. In it's Faith New specific. South Wales and the Jewish Board of Deputies.
0: So um, early this week when Josh Howells, he shared this article or an excerpt from it, and he uh, he wrote a little caption and put some different sources saying that it's often been these same sort of groups that have always been responsible for pushing these kind of anti-free speech pro-censorship kind of laws um, and although it's controversial to say it is true um, and if we even look at the head of Fates New South Wales which was set up by Mins we find out in a later article is actually headed by a former head of the Jewish board of deputies so these you can imagine these two groups are probably working in cahoots to make it sound like there's some sort of community consensus we've got two organizations One's a multi-faith, multicultural representative organisation, and the other one is a more specific, you know, Jewish organisation, which is, um, you know, they're they're trying to defend their community against threats during this current Israeli-Palestinian crisis, and um, or at least they're using that as a pretext to tighten laws against being uh, criticised or anything like that. So it looks like there's some sort of consensus, but in reality, it's two lobby groups, led by people that know each other and have tight relations um anything you want to add to this uh, Uh, i think
1: that's that covers the topic quite well so we'll head into the next article which is from the guardian it's titled done push for migration zones for people released from immigration detention rejected as stuff of tyranny Uh, peter dunn has claimed that migration zones could be set up to deal with people released from detention by the high court A suggestion immediately rejected as nonsensical and unconstitutional by some. The opposition leader made the comments on Friday morning in an interview boasting about Labor caving into his demands to toughen restrictions on people released from detention in response to the High Court decision on indefinite detention. On Thursday evening, Parliament passed a bill imposing electronic monitoring and curfews on those released from bridging visas due to the decision, with breaches of conditions now punishable by a mandatory minimum sentence of one year in prison. At the apex summit in San Francisco, Anthony Albanese said he was fully involved in the decision to agree to the coalition amendments announced by the acting Prime Minister Richard Miles in question time on Thursday. On Friday, Dunn was asked how he'd deal with the 84 people released so far if he was Prime Minister if deportation was the solution. Dunn told 5AA Radio, well it is, and the government should be making a greater effort in pulling out every diplomatic leverage that they've got to get rid of these people and return them back to their country of origin there are migration zones that can be set up there's the option the government seriously needs to consider which is preventative detention order and they're all available to the government dunn's suggestion appears to be a reference to a howard era policy to excise parts of australia from the migration zone in a bid to prevent people arriving by boat from claiming asylum Yeah, well, once again, I think
0: uh, this might seem obvious to our audience, but uh, this seems like another attempt by the government just to put a band-aid over the symptoms of a problem rather than actually trying to solve the actual problem itself. For example, we can look at, uh, we could say immigration, for example, we'll have, um, you know, high crime rates because of immigration or you'll have communities that become less cohesive because of immigration. And the government will then move in to try and treat these symptoms and they'll put in programs and uh, whatnot. And you can see the same thing with the loss of religion and how the government solves this by advocating for more mental health programs and stuff like that. It's really just uh, a bandaid over the symptoms, but it's not solving the root cause, which is that immigration in this case is leading to this societal cohesion falling apart. And uh, it really needs to be curbed. We've got this record high migration and really, there's no one in the government who's doing anything meaningful to oppose it. We're seeing some token opposition from the Liberals. I suppose uh, this, yeah, exactly like it mentioned in the article, is like how Howard opposed refugees, but then was responsible for one of the biggest migration upticks in Australian history, um, as this seems to be the case here, where he might be going after these fringe cases to make it look like it's tough on immigration, to get those voters who were opposed immigration on his side, but then to do nothing in reality to fix the actual problem. Yeah, I leave, mean,
1: Matthew? you go on the crime part. One of these, these people in offshore detention were serious criminals. There's a reason that both the Labor Party and the Liberal Party agreed that these people should be kept outside the Australian mainland. Uh, the article states that there's a Rohingya man whose visa was cancelled because he raped a 10-year-old. And um, for the High Court to think it's okay to take power away from the Australian government to protect Australian residents from a person like this. It's quite a far reach in my opinion because there's been a long consensus on the topic of offshore detention and its effectiveness in controlling Australia's border. And now this change has just disrupted the status quo, which perhaps this could be... I have some more anti-immigration sentiment in some parts of the, the LNP. Whether or not that leads to any meaningful policy changes, probably unlikely, considering all the property developer and business interests behind the Liberal Party. But it could be something that, um, in the upcoming election, could get a lot of traction, get a lot of public support, especially with the cost of living pressures, turn that into an immigration issue.
0: Yeah, it really is um, it really is revealing to compare how our you know our government and all of its related organisations how it acts nowadays compared to how it acted during Australia's founding or the years, the decades immediately following it, where you had politicians who would fight tooth and nail to secure a deal that would benefit Australians from the British government or within their own government. You know, there would be genuine popular sentiment that would send some of these politicians to Parliament, and then they would actually, you know, fight tooth and nail, uh, battle it down to the last full stop to get these things through that would benefit where they came from. Um, But, you know, we see today from these decisions they're just like, uh, I don't even know, they're serving abstract concepts, like probably they had some, uh, the High Court had some sort of thinking in the back of its head that it was serving some anti-racist sort of agenda by allowing these people in i'm not you know you can imagine that sort of thinking uh, is pervasive nowadays um i've often heard the high court described as an activist court and you know i can't imagine what else would motivate this sort of decision except for that just to
1: follow up on your point about early australia you had back in the day you had a labor party who was concerned around australian laborers around the working man and their conditions and their cost of living, how they can afford a house and look after a family. Now you have two parties who are seemingly more concerned around abstract policies, ideas, theories. And yeah, it's just not good, especially when we're in a current cost of living crisis, when families are struggling, to have politicians who talk like they care but just act like they don't. And you see, just in the broader immigration issue, we we have a massive over-demand in housing already and we're letting more and more immigration in from india from the rest of asia and it's just not beneficial to australians and no one seriously in in parliament is concerned about this
0: yep well it's uh it's crazy to think but a you know, it's the disposition of a politician who actually tries to serve the country and put its interests above all others would be described as an ideological nationalist. But in reality, that's sort of just that's an unideological stance to always put Australia first in their decision making, especially as an Australian politician. Um, so, you know, it's, it's become partisan. And also, no one wants to be a nationalist. No one wants that label. No one wants to behave like that because of the criticism that they would receive from the media, from the public, from, well, not so much from the electorate. I think that the electorate would really go after somebody who actually genuinely represented them. But um, yeah, regardless, I think uh, we've exhausted this topic. Would you like to move on to the next one, Matthew?
1: After spending years investing in their relationship with the foreign minister, Jewish leaders are nervous she's being swayed by pro-Palestinian Labour MPs. Last Sunday, the Executive Council of Australian Jury and the Zionist Federation of Australia held an emergency phone meeting to discuss a politician with whom they spent years building a relationship, Penny Wong. That morning, the foreign minister had, rhetorically, walked up to the red line for the lobby group over the Israel-Hamas war. We do call on Israel to cease the attacking of hospitals, she told ABC's Insiders program. We need steps towards a ceasefire. On the call, Jeremy Liebler, a Melbourne lawyer and president of the Zionist Federation executive Council, President Julian Siegel, argued the time had come for Jewish leaders to criticise Wong publicly. He and others expressed concerns that Wong might be changing the government's policy, which was to accept that it, the Israeli Defence Force's invasion of the Gaza Strip was a, a legitimate defensive action. Everyone on the call agreed that Lieber and Siegel would issue a statement saying that they were highly concerned by Wong's comments. The rare public repudiation illustrates the delicate position of Australia's Jewish leaders. Preserving a good relationship with Wong and the federal Labor government is crucial. Liebler frequently communicates privately with Wong and his staff, but they know that Labor MPs nationwide are under intense pressure over the government's support for Israel from left-wing activists and Australia's large Muslim community. Whilst Australia doesn't have much leverage over Israel, as a strong Western ally, any diplomatic break would be celebrated by Israel's enemies. It would likely have long-term consequences for the Jewish community's relationship with the Labour Party, too, driving political donors to the right and alienating left-wing Jews. Mashni, the president of the Australian-Palestinian Advocacy Network, is an opponent of the West. Israel's the domino, he said last year. Israel falls over, not just the Middle East, "'South America, the Africans, the world is a far better place "'once we destroy the Western imperialist control of the world.'" Wong hasn't posted a photo with an equivalent member of the Jewish lobby since the war began. Wong has been more even-handed in her comments. Instead of calling for a ceasefire, one of the global left's main demands, she spoke of the next step towards a ceasefire that could not not be one-sided.'" Hamas still holds hostages, she said on the ABC. Hamas is still attacking Israel. How Israel defends itself matters.
0: okay, uh, so I think this is quite revealing of the sort of relationship lobby groups and other multicultural organizations have with the government, um, like the article said, the uh, Muslim community in Australia it probably has a, uh, a relatively well it's actually a larger population than the Jewish community and it has more electorates as well that the vote actually matters here. Um there are probably only two main electorates that the Jewish vote is even very useful for. Uh one in each in one in two different states. Um so what what's actually happening here? Why is the government trying to suck up to Israel so much? And um why is it being so partisan on this issue? We know that almost everyone in the Liberal Party, or I think everyone to my knowledge, has sided with Israel in the recent Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and almost everyone in Labour has as well. You have some minor parties that have defected from this. Green's are probably the note, the one to note. Um, but I think this next article will reveal why this relationship exists. Um, so we'll dive right into it, and we'll give some more commentary at the end. I think.
1: Yeah. Um, so we'll jump right into it. It's an article from Michael West Media. Titled Israel, Gaza and Australian Politics, Master Lobbyist Mark Lieber reveals how power really works. Keeping Foreign Minister Bob Carr in check, watching journalists at the ABC, lobbying Prime Ministers, Mark Lieber has a few tricks up his sleeve when it comes to power and influence. Jommy T and Michael West reveal the Master Lobbyist playbook in his own words. Mark Lieber is the tax lawyer, Australian Jewish community leader, and staunch Israel defender behind the initiative to get six former prime ministers to sign a letter in favour of Israel in Gaza. Paul Keating, the notable living exception to this line of signatures, famously outed Lieber as the man behind the strategy. Lieber has been an influential player in Australian politics for decades, a Zionist community leader with the ear of successive prime ministers and media chiefs. On Monday night's Q&A program on the ABC, Lieber, in his role as Chairman of the Australian Israel and Jewish Affairs Council, the AIJAC, was involved in a tense debate on Israel and Gaza, which he reverberated on social media since. Much of the criticism centred around what many viewers believed was preferential treatment given to Lieber by host Patricia Carvalas over the UN and Palestinian representatives on the show. Anticipating a furious reaction, the ABC had even opted to close the Q&A show to a live audience. The backlash on social media since the program ran on Monday night is in stark contrast to the treatment of the Gaza tragedy in Australia's mainstream media, which has has mostly favoured the position of the Israeli government of Benjamin Netanyahu over that of the oppressed Palestinians. It has been a vexing question for many, given the massive slaughter of Palestinian civilians in the myriad human rights abuses in response to the October 7 attacks on Israel by Hamas. Why the mainstream media in Australia, and indeed politicians of the two major parties, have been so partisan in favour of Israel. Archive speeches made by Mark Lieber on lobbying and the media shed light on the power of the Israel lobby in Australia. An ad memoir. an archived ad memoir from the Arnold Bloch-Liebler website, uh, promoting a fascinating insight from the man himself on political lobbying. The document appears to have been prepared for a talk at the Jewish Community Council of Western Australia in Perth on July 24th, 2018. Publicly identified engagements on that trip included business breakfast where Liebler spoke about tax, and addressed to Carmel School, and an address as a guest of the Friends of Israel, Western Australia. Access to these speeches are still available via the ABL website. However, there is no mention of Lieber's participation at the event held by the JCCWA. Mark Lieber was approached for comment for this story, but was unavailable. The speech provides a fascinating insight on the art of lobbying. The document outlines three lessons on lobbying. Lesson one. Choose the style and the manner of lobbying that's most appropriate to the situation. Lesson two, get the timing right. Lesson three, when it comes to Israel, it's important not to go about it as though we are Israel's mouthpiece. The document provides some extraordinary details on how Mark Liebler influenced Bill Haydn when Haydn was for- Minister of Foreign Affairs in the Hawke government. Quote, I came up with an example of this going back to the mid-1980s. When we learnt that the then Foreign Minister Bill Hyden had agreed to open an exhibition of art for the PLO, some of the works were deeply offensive and I felt a responsibility to call him. While the Minister argued the toss with me, he finally conceded after viewing the exhi- exhibition that it was probably inappropriate and would pull out simply on the basis that he was not available. But he told me that if... I ever indicated to anyone that his decision was a result of my lobbying, he would deny the conversation ever happened and never speak to me again. I feel that enough time has elapsed to take you into my confidence today. Moderating ABC journalists. The document also details how the advocacy of the AIJAC extended to, representatives to representations to the ABC, both publicly and privately to seek to moderate Sophie McNeil's coverage of the Middle East when she told the ABC's correspondent, quote, She should never have been given this posting by the ABC because she was ideologically attached to the Palestinian cause. I don't believe the ABC would have sent her if they would known, but they weren't going to create a controversy by pulling her out. That said, our representations, both public and private, undoubtedly moderated her behaviour because she knew she was being watched. End quote. The document also details how Liebler lobbied some influential Labour power brokers ahead of the 2017 Labour National Convention, Stami Bob Carr and his associates. Quote, Bob Carr and his associates were making worrying inroads on the diplomatic recognition of a Palestinian state, particularly in Western Sydney electorates with a strong Muslim influence. A great deal of sustained... Behind the scenes lobbying was done, with the leader and with in- individual politicians who voice carry weight to ensure that the damage was limited. This kind of lobbying changes as circumstances change, but it's never done, never finished. End quote. In terms of working a hierarchy of political influence, the speech notes that on some issues, the lobbyist is better off avoiding politicians and going to their trusted miners. In the case of John Howard, for example, I would often Turn first to Josh Frydenberg over the period Josh served as one of the Prime Minister's senior policy advisors. It also reveals how Liebler worked closely and collaboratively with the Israeli ambassador. Quote, Israel has an embassy. I work closely and collaboratively with the ambassador, often presenting a similar perspective on something, but I won't do it together with him. We have different constituencies. End quote. The document stresses the need for bipartisan political support and for shaping the narrative for supporting Israel by emphasizing the commonalities of the major parties, rather than the differences. If we focus too much on the differences, we run the very real risk that this emphasis can become self-fulfilling. Quote, the final point on the issue of how best to promote and defend Israel and it's a point I often make to young lobbyists is not to waste their time trying to justify settlements because they are never going to win this battle. I tell them focus instead on whether or not settlements are the cause of the conflict between Israel and Palestinians, because the compelling truth is that eliminating settlements won't bring about peace. End quote. The latter point was really reiterated during the Q&A debate where Libra appeared to trivialize the impact of the illegal Jewish settlements in the West Bank. Yeah, a lot to unpack in that article. Yeah,
0: I think that's a, a honestly brilliant article by Michael West. Um, I think before we dive into anything, I want to read for people who aren't familiar with Michael West, um, some things that his uh, career entails. So he's not a far-right politician or a uh, journalist or something like that. He's not a blogger. He's actually uh, quite an esteemed independent journalist, and that's why he could give his take in this way. Um, so, he began his career uh, as part of the Australian Financial Review. Uh, he's been praised by the founder of Crikey. He, uh, what else is there? One of the few financial journals out there having a, a go at some of the business practices employed by the likes of Macquarie Bank and Bubbock and Brown. In 2005, he won the Business Journalism Walkley Award for his article at the Australian titled All State. So, um, you know, these are just some of the things that he's done. Uh, um he was apparently yeah it was part of uh one of the 30 force redundancies made at fairfax media so i imagine that's when he went on to found michael west media and thank goodness he did because he's been providing a independent voice that really uh gives the whole story on this issue um so like listening to this article i think we can all agree you know uh matthew and i you know, we're ordinary Australians, we're Christians. I think both of us, maybe that's the most unord- unordinary thing about us compared to most Australians. Um, but we don't have any interest in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, probably our biggest interest is making sure Australia stays out of this conflict altogether. We don't want to see Australian casualties. You know, we don't want to anger either side, um, to be honest, because we've seen the domestic up, uh, up. Raw and uh, turmoil that it's caused in our own country. Um, You know, this is a function of immigration, to tell you the truth. If we hadn't had such high immigration, multicultural uh, immigration policy, then we wouldn't have had to worry about, you know, taking a partisan stance. But we do have to uh, concern ourselves with picking either side because no matter what we do, this is going to uh, probably lead to domestic violence from one of these two groups, no matter who we side with. So uh, it's probably in Australia's best geopolitical interest, domestic interest, um, and you know, every other interest, Christian interest, I think, to stay neutral on this conflict. Um, and for the most part, the Australian population is. We recently had polling. Um, I think it was published by, uh, what's his name, Coz something on uh, X, uh, formerly known as Twitter. He publishes a lot of uh, good or interesting polling He's definitely not on our side. He's a far left labor strategist for the, um, you know, I I think he works independently, some sort of uh, polling firm or something like that. But he uh, recently published some polling that shows that the vast, vast majority of Australians um, are neutral on this conflict. They just don't want to intervene. Um, I think they're balanced on who they want to send aid to. You know, I think uh, Israel and Palestine, they're equally weighted on who they're interested in sending. I think, probably humanitarian aid too. Um, we should have got this in the notes. That's all right. Um, so the, the the most important interest is that we stay independent in this. However, we've seen that, uh, like Michael West was talking about, that this is imperiled by lobby groups like the AIJAC, but also other uh, organizations which um, all hold power in their own way. For example, the Anti-Defamation Commission, this is a I think probably mostly Victoria based um but they have influence everywhere else uh they're like a Australian equivalent to America's Anti-Defamation League which we know is a um, an organization founded by uh to protect Jewish interests in America and also Australia they're founded by the Benai Berith, which is like a Jewish community group and um They have very partisan interests. So when it comes to Australians, they want to promote uh, diversity and inclusion and everything like that. But then when it comes to Israel, they're also calling Christians who um, follow their faith and uh, oppose uh, Jewish actions in Israel. For example, their killing of civilians or their, um, their opposing religious beliefs. Uh, of course, we know that Judaism doesn't believe that Jesus is God and the Messiah. Um, so they, uh, the ADC, the Anti-Defamation Commission, goes after Christians and attacks them for this belief. And they also uh, they, they put a lot of focus on attacking Muslims as well. At the same time, they, pr- do, they run diversity inclusion programs in, um, I think, over 100 Victorian schools. So this is an organization with a lot of influence. So in Australia, they're promoting multiculturalism. In Israel, they back the Netanyahu government and they want to see Israel destroy its enemies. And, um, you know, they've, they're also probably exerting influence on politicians to back this. And they seem to mostly have sway in the Labor Party, but I do think they work across um, party lines as well. I posted a National Observer infographic about this to the telegram, the National Observer telegram. Make sure you follow it. And um, I think also Twitter, as far as I know, or X. So um, that's a second organisation. We've got the AIJAC, we've got the ADC. There are other organisations as well, which we know are notable. Um, Recently, we would – well, actually, I think we'll go into one of the tactics that the AIJAC uses, which is they pay for um, flights to Israel for Australian politicians. In return, I I expect that they would expect uh, um, political favours, you know, siding with Israel in Australian uh, geopolitical issues and everything like that. So it's not a free trip. We know that um, the Liberal Party, there was a study done on these trips. Israel is actually the most visited country for Australian politicians, and Uh, Liberal Party members take the trip to Israel probably twice the frequency of Labour politicians and during the same period uh, trips to Palestine were even less Um, I think I'll let you jump in Matthew I've been talking for a while there's still a lot more to say but um, I'm sure you can cover some of it
1: yeah um, and people might think you know Mark Lieber he's just one guy he doesn't have much influence but he does You know, he's had, since the 1970s, barring Keating, he's had influence over every single Prime Minister of Australia, from Malcolm Fraser to Anthony Albanese. Um, The recent voice to Parliament was championed by Mark Liebler. He was influential in setting up the Uluru Statement from the Heart and the subsequent referendum. And he's also influential in abusing his power in Australia for the benefit of Israel, by influencing Scott Morrison's decision to move uh, Australia's capital to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv. And in his own personal work, his law firm has fought for native title for past 50 years at the expense of Australian landowners. And his power is such that when people like Kevin Rudd and Bob Carr oppose him in parliament, They get leadership challenges from Julia Gillard, who has a very tight relationship with Mark Lever. And so we've got to ask ourselves, do we want these multinationals wielding this much influence over our politics, where if someone criticizes their power, they get cut and they get axed? And the question is, will this happen to Miss Wong? Will she be axed for her disagreements with the Jewish lobbying groups? Or will she bend the knee? That's, that's a big question. You no, know,
0: yeah, so you could see Penny Wong is probably acting more in Australia's interest, uh, or at least you know she tends to than a lot of other politicians and she is being attacked by it. And you know this could risk her political career, although she might be siding with the majority, although she might be siding with I think seventy percent of Australians who want to remain neutral in this conflict, she could lose her career for actually being, I suppose you could say a true sort of democratic representation. Although, you know, we don't like Penny Wong. She's part of the Labour Party high up with Albanese. And uh, we know that that this government is not um, particularly kind to Christians or in most issues, Australia first. But in this issue, we can see that she is. um, I I think we can all recognise that she is doing – she's probably – it's better to have her than any member of the Liberal Party right now. You can imagine if the Liberals were were in, would be seeing America-style foreign aid packages in the billions of dollars being sent over uh, more like Ukraine. Um so it's it's good that we have a Labour Party that is slightly more hesitant to support Israel um in at the moment. I think that's it's probably uh, a, a hidden benefit. Um I I like the example that you brought up. I think it's really telling and you can uh you can uh go on about this more if you want, but um how Mark Lieber he supported in Australia, he supported Aboriginals who are a minority in Australia who often have some sort of antipathy towards Australian history Australian colonialism the institutions that were built by Australia's founders and uh, Australia's founding population although that's not everyone there is definitely some degree of resentment in uh, pro- Aboriginal politics and its representatives and so in Australia he supports the voice of Parliament which would give you know uh, political representation to these minorities but in Israel he wants to uh, you know level Gaza, much like, or I, I don't know if that's an, that's not an exact quote, but he 100% is throwing his weight behind the Netanyahu Israeli government. He isn't concerned about you know giving a voice to Palestinians. That it, it seems ludicrous to even say. Um, so you know I think this is really revealing. We've got the ADC whose leader, Devir um, uh, Brumovich, I think his name. He supports multiculturalism in Australia, but uh, one state uh, solution you know, uh, pro Israel government in Israel, you know, no quarter given to the Palestinians. Then we look at the AIJAC. They support uh minority voice in Australia. In Israel, they back the Nanyahu government one hundred percent. They're throwing their weight behind him. You know, the war effort, uh, they have no qualms with the human casualties, the, the um the you know, the atrocities being committed against the Palestinians by the Israeli Defence Force. Um now I think you and I probably both agree on this Matthew but there are definitely probably being well definitely atrocities being committed by both sides in the israeli-palestinian conflict I don't think either side is blameless <clears throat> they're both um, they both have religions and ideologies that allow them to be unscrupulous towards civilians and they have carried this out in the real world um, at least as far as I can tell I think that's probably the most balanced take on this so I, I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that
1: No, that's 100% right. I just – yes, we should all be advocating for peace, praying for peace because that's the most important thing right now Um, because there's real people, real civilians out there, you know, suffering the consequences of this heartless disregard for the well-being of the fellow man. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah.
0: There was also, I remember you read from the the um, first article, just to link it all back in, the two organisations that lobbied mins, um, Faiths New South Wales and um, the Jewish Board of Deputies. So, um, you know, just off the top of our heads, just just in uh, these four articles that we read, although ADC wasn't mentioned, I think they're a little bit more minor. But we've got four Jewish organisations. Um, and they're all pressuring the government to partisanly support Israel in a conflict Australians aren't interested in, have no stake in. Um, Israel, is to, um, like funders, uh, Israel is not a great ally to Australia, like is often touted by American politicians and pundits, especially conservatives. Israel is not a great ally to Australia. Truthfully, America is, which is a bit worrying considering how partisanly they support Israel. Um, but. Um, So we've got four organizations. They're all supporting some form of um, either censorship or uh, anti-free speech actions, you know, the Jewish Board of Deputies and uh, Multi-Faith New South South Wales, I think it was. Is that the name?
1: Uh, Faith New South Wales. So
0: they're they're both uh, supporting a censorship law be strengthened. You've got the ADC, which has always been in favor of censorship and uh, promotes it all the time. Uh, they try to get far right people, or supposedly far right people, uh, you know, blacklisted from the mainstream media and whatnot. Um, the AIJAC, I'm sure, has no qualms with censorship. Um, out of all these groups, to my knowledge, AIJAC is the most powerful. At least Michael West says so. Uh, his article says so, or it might have been a previous article by him. Uh, it says that AIJAC is the most powerful lobbying group, Jewish lobbying group in Australia. Um, do you know of any Palestinian lobby groups that exist? I know there's a, a Islamic one, but I don't think there is a Palestinian one.
1: Uh, there's nothing to the level of the ADC or anything like that. It's all rather minor stuff. Mm. And it's all wrapped up in other progressive causes. So it's more around just the general Greens kind of lobbying.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um there was one other point I
1: wanted to... I think... Um, what were you going to say? Yeah, lastly, on, on, and there's a really telling quote from Mark Liebler in the Michael West article where he says, in regards to his lobbying on the Israel-Palestine issue, he says this kind of lobbying changes, the circumstances change, but it's never done, never finished. Mm. People like Mark Liebler will not rest. They will continue fighting for, until they die for Israel and this is not good for Australian politics. You know, we should have a system that is run primarily for to the benefit of Australia. It's not to the benefit of whoever's lobbying group is the best. Should be Australia first. Always, of
0: course. Yeah. So we we know there is there's massive uh, you know support for Palestinians, especially among uni students, and uh, of course among the Muslim community in Australia. And we know that uh, is pro-Israeli causes and Jews have uh, these massive lobby groups and influence over government, but I don't think we have anyone that we could say 100% completely supports Australia and um, their cause is to put Australia first in all things. Um, so, you know, everyone except for Australians have this sort of, um, def- sort of defence and organisation working for them. Um, perhaps this is what the British-Australian community will become as it grows you know, a true voice for um, the Australians that aren't covered by all these other lobby groups and organisations and multicultural communities and stuff like that. Perhaps it will grow into that, but presently there's nothing mainstream, nothing with real authentic you know, teeth or power that could actually, you know, put Australia first, which you'd think should be the default position of government, but without money running into it, uh, running into their pockets to uh, promote such a cause. Clearly it's not at the top of their priority list. Um. I think that pretty much brings us to the end of the episode. Unless you wanted to add anything, Matthew.
1: Nah, that's everything covered for this week. I think. Okay. Well, uh, it was great.
0: This was a great episode zero. I think it came together well. Um, hopefully, our you know production ability and everything will improve as we go on. But I think we uh, we put out some good content today. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you follow the National Observer on Substack. Uh, make sure that you follow our telegram. So those are the two places where this is being posted. Also make sure that you follow our ex. Um, I like to post uh, things there, reply to Australian politicians and media figures and whatnot. Um, you know, that's where the news is breaking really, over on X, formerly known as Twitter. Um, also make sure that you share this episode with family and friends. Make sure your grandma hears it. Make sure your employer hears it. Um, I'm sure this is all information that they want to know. Um, Probably don't actually do that. They might not. Uh, they, they might. They might be pro-Israeli. Who knows? Uh,
1: yeah, maybe not the grandparents. Maybe I yeah, the
0: grandparents. But uh, everyone else, that you I know, Watch too much TV. Yeah, go shout it off uh, a bridge or something like that. Tell everyone that you you to follow the podcast. Um, we're going to be bringing yeah, do on a banner drop. Yeah, do a banner drop. <laughs> we're going to be bringing on some other interesting uh, hosts in the next couple of weeks. We've got other uh, three other hosts who we would cycle between so we'll have three hosts per show uh, hopefully and from there maybe some other guests so i've got some uh, guests lined up some interesting guys from new zealand new zealand who uh, will be joining us in a couple of weeks to discuss all things new zealand and australian politics um so lots of exciting things lined up um and i think that pretty much wraps it up thank you for joining me matthew uh, i'll see you next week
1: i'll see you next week see ya. have a good week everyone thank
0: you